I think in the end, if you want to resolve these issues, you ultimately need to unblock the, the choke points. And I think you've got to do the things that aren't very sexy, but actually long term put the economy on a footing where it actually can give you real and productive growth. I'm Richard Yetzenga. You're listening to Blue Lens on Mike. In this series, we hear from a broad range of experts from business, economics, and further afield, bringing you unique perspectives on a world still grappling with post-COVID reality. Hi, I'm joined today by Sir John Key, former Prime Minister of New Zealand and current Chair of the ANZ New Zealand Board, among a range of other pursuits. Welcome, Sir John. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, it was only six years ago, 2016, you stepped down as uh, Prime Minister, the year of the Brexit vote, the year of the Trump vote, the year Duterte was elected in the Philippines. The world seems, that, that seemed like the beginning of quite a shift and the world seemed so radically different in so many ways. What do you make of it all? Yeah, I retired at the very end of 2016, so I kind of saw those events. But, you know, what, what uh, transpired over the next, uh, is say, five or six years has been a very radically different position to the, you know, eight years that I was Prime Minister of New Zealand, because I came in during the GFC, really, in 2008. And I think, I think there are a lot of different factors, actually, that drove it. But one of them was certainly a view... When I came in in 08, I think there was a widespread view amongst leaders and countries that um, China was uh, an important country to bring into sort of the mainstream, if you like, that they would be a big economic driver, that the more we embrace them, the more they would become, I suppose, quote unquote, like us. And, um, and so President Obama, who came in at exactly the same time as me and many other countries really sort of reached out. And, um, you know, saw China as, as, as being um, a, a useful and important uh, counterparty. And I think um, what really happened um, in, in that sort of 2016 period, actually, was that Donald Trump became president of the United States of America. And as we know with President Trump, he's been a deep skeptic when it comes to trade, probably in globalization just generally. Um, but I think what is without doubt is that he almost single-handedly really changed the global narrative on China. And he he really had to sort of come up with a story for the Rust Belts and the flyover states and the and the blue-collar workers of those. Um, cities and towns about why they weren't doing well and I mean, his basic message in really simple terms was China doesn't play fair that's witnessed by the fact there's a huge trade imbalance um, they don't pay people properly and go through a million different things uh, but actually we should disengage from them and um, all of that was occurring at a time when I think China itself was obviously growing rapidly and getting stronger and doing what countries do as they, you know, look to become a superpower. But um, I think that's been the, the, the big change. And then, of course, you throw in COVID and all the other different things. But, but yeah, it's been a, a very much a move away from globalisation and a move away from wanting to embrace China to having them on a list where um, many countries are deeply concerned. And I think um, that, that causes all sorts of challenges, actually, for many of ANZ's customers. So 
challenging times, really. It, it is challenging. One of the maybe the phraseologies from the Trump period that stuck is this use of alternative facts, and Trump kind of legitimised um, these. And alternative facts, obviously, is a polite term. Uh, it, it seems to have spread. Do you think that genie can ever really go back into the bottle in terms of our political discourse? I don't really. And I think the other part of that is a growing both divide between what I would describe as the left and right of politics and the sheer intensity of the political debate and discourse. And I think a fair bit of that could probably be sheeted home to social media. I think... Um, Keyboard warriors seem to be a lot braver in what they're prepared to say and what they're prepared to repeat and share and even things that they know just aren't truthfully correct. Um, um, and I've just noticed that even in New Zealand, I mean, in New Zealand, really, the left and right are not separated by an enormous amount. I mean, we, we gravitate towards the centre. It's probably true in Australia as well. The bulk of, if you thought, think about normalised bell curve, the bulk of voters live in that middle space and yeah you know I would argue with you that the right of politics believes a lot more in a market approach and trusts sort of the the market and capitalize capitalism and a belief that you know if you give people opportunity they'll lift themselves up and the left largely believe in a bit more redistribution but they're not a million miles apart but even in New Zealand and I think in Australia that that's become a lot more rugged and and um and difficult, let alone the US. It's it's definitely different. You mentioned keyboard warriors, and during your political life, you, you you were in the period through what I might term kind of the learning phase of social media, and now it's this super advanced, can be quite caustic, can be quite aggressive. I mean, how different does that make politics today to when um, when politics was your uh, main pursuit? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm sort of 61. I've been out of politics five or six years. So I hate sort of looking back like granddad would from the rocking chair because I feel like it, it ages me. But these are dog years, these, these years. Every every year is, uh, is, is enormous changes and, and, um, and uh, differences. So, yeah, I mean, look, I remember when we first thought we were so cool, you know, having a Facebook site and we'd post a couple of pictures to Instagram and, I remember thinking, who the hell would be interested in Twitter, you know? Um, now Elon Musk appears to be very interested and has paid tens of billions of dollars for it. Um, so look, I, I think what the one thing that's really changed has been the instantaneous nature of politics and, and, and also the ability to go around mainstream media and, um, and to disintermediate them really. And so what that's meant is that to your point earlier, you know, alternative facts, which you know could be another word for complete and outright lies at times, um, and misinformation. That is uh, that 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 doesn't have the filter that you get because in mainstream media, they're always ultimately worried about the the uh, regulatory authorities that might you know uh, have control over them, um, and and also that they meet broadcasting standards and there's a degree of fairness and there's not a new bias and there's some some at least attempt at fact-checking, you know, whereas you don't need to have any of those things if you bang out a tweet or, you know, share a Facebook post. So I, I don't see that changing. I think 
um, I think there are actually very wide social implications of all this. I mean, we, we're focusing on politics, but at, a, at one level, they can be a force for good. I mean, if you as the chief economist for ANZ want to respond to a, a number that's come out, uh, you know, whether it's GDP or employment or any other thing, you can put out a, a very quick tweet. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot less complicated than putting out a report or a... a, a, a um, you know, a press release or something, and you're instantaneously dialed into the story, and people know you know what you're thinking, and and yeah, obviously it can be a lot more from there. Um, so actually, you know, they're very, very, very powerful, but um, equally, you know, got this you know very different situation now, and I think you're partly probably seeing it actually with Meta and some of the you know Senate concerns uh, with uh, you know Facebook, but. But I do think some of the social issues that we see today, um, particularly with young people, uh, in part can be sheeted home to social media. You know, I think it's it's mind blowing and it's all absorbing and and it's it's really tough on them. I think and and you know you know young men and women. So uh, I just think you know social media's got it's got a lot of good, but it's got a lot to ask for as well. Um, when when you were Prime Minister, how often did you speak to the press or were in direct contact with the press compared to what a politician today might have to, their level of engagement they might have to have? Yeah, well, I used to dream of the time when, uh, if you go back to the 1960s, when Holyoke was Prime Minister in New Zealand, because there's a famous picture of him holding court with the press gallery, which was three of them, standing at, uh, on the other side of his desk as he rattled off, you know, the facts that they would be putting in the paper or whatever that day. Um, the, my, mine was a lot more, a lot more robust, but we would have, we would have daily stand-ups and, you know, sometimes two or three times a day and, you know, quite a big diet of media, you know. Um, uh, and, and so we were seen as very, I think, genuinely very accessible, you know, like that we would be there and dialed in stories and, and quite active, but, but yeah, now it's saying social media, um, it's it's even much more much more aggressive and and um, and different too. I think you know what what was deemed to be news sixty years ago, even ten years ago, these days it's you know it's everything. And you can I mean, there's a story running around about Matt Hancock um, going you know who was the old health minister in the in the UK. Going on a celebrity show, and and that it's all social media is sort of full of all of it, whether he should be or shouldn't be, and, and that those shows exist. You know, it's just we just live in a different world, more instantaneous world. Yeah, completely different. Maybe can we switch to macro for a little bit? The, the economic, uh, like politics, the economic challenges challenges today are radically different from five years ago. Inflation, obviously, the biggest current issue and it's it's been the gift that keeps on giving in a way in a sense it's just kept surprising not just in New Zealand but but globally with the US having such an outsized influence on um, you know all of our prosperity do you think um, the Fed can manage a soft landing? I would be surprised actually I'd have to say I mean firstly I think if you go back over the last 20 or 30 years um, and have a look at every single sort of economic you know, hiccup or crisis that's come along from the GFC to the dot-com or various different things, uh, you know, Asian crisis, the response of central banks around the world has been to, and governments, has been to very much try and avoid those crises. And so the response has largely been printing money, 
flooding flooding the system with cash, um, trying to put confidence into the financial system that everything would be okay. And, um, you know, the GFC was dominated really, think about by a banking crisis in the United States and that morphed into Europe. But, but really, um, that was the response. And you certainly saw that with COVID. You know, the, you know the, the playbook was pretty easy one to pick from. You know, and in, here in New Zealand, you know, the Reserve Bank uh, engaged in quantitative easing, printing cash. The government spent money like, oh, tomorrow. Um, it, was, it was a very different world. But, of course, you know, at some point, inflation was going to show up in the system. And it came along, I think, for a, a variety of different reasons from supply chain um, issues, right, you know, right through to labour shortages. And, but, but it's there and it's entrenched. And as you know better than anybody else, I mean, inflation is as much about expectations as anything else. And now the expectations are that prices will, will rise. And I think putting that genie back in the bottle is not easy. And I remember times in New Zealand's history where inflation was a significant issue. And it took the sort of dogged determination and a whole lot of pain from people like a Reserve Bank governor like Don Brash, who raised rates. And I, I remember at times we thought this was crazy, you know, the amount that they were raising rates by to ultimately break the cycle. And so I think, you know, it'll be interesting, you know, can you do it? I mean, in theory, you can get a soft landing, but, but this is what you're countering against. I mean, at ANZ New Zealand, we just had our board meeting um, a few weeks ago. And on the one hand, you look for stress in the system, right? Because you sort of see all of this, you know, stuff that's going on and you say, wow, this has got to be, you know, got to be incredible, all these rate hikes. But unlike Australia, where you're 80% floating and 20% fixed, so that at least any changes, they're much more muted, obviously, under Philip Lowe and the, the RBA in Australia. Um, in New Zealand, they, they were 80% fixed and 20% floating, so it takes a long way to flow through. So we still think 57% of ANZ New Zealand customers, and we're, we're the dominant bank here by far in terms of scale and size and everything, we think 57% of our customers still have... A, a fixed rate mortgage with a two or three in front of it, and that's going to roll off in the next six months. That's the first thing. Secondly, you know, you've got very, very tight labour markets. So what's happening is wage rounds are going through. And if we look at source income, what we see is that for, for ANZ customers, their source income has risen about 5.5% in the last 12 months. So, you know, um, at, at one level, they're going to face these increases, and it's not obviously just, interest costs it's you know it's energy and it's everything you know it's the cost of a latte i mean everything's gone through the roof but but they've also got pay rounds that are they're mirroring that and it's not inconceivable is it that over the next say two to three years the you know pay rounds look like something like a 20 percent increase for workers you know they get six or seven percent plenty of them have been going through in double digits in new zealand so will they really hit the brakes i mean maybe but um logically would tell you they, they should. So that just might force central banks to really, really have to tighten. And if they do, at some point, it's very hard to see how that ends in the soft landing, in my view. The cycle uh, and history is against them, no doubt. I, I do. It does seem to me, though, the strength of consumer balance sheets, A, is contributing to this inflation challenge, but also I think hopefully means that the landing is not too bumpy. There probably will be some bumps, and in a way, as you suggest, there, there need to be to bringing say inflation psychology back to the um, back to a more more even um, uh, position uh, is there a 
policy package or a policy approach that's better able to address cost of living issues rather than what is largely a reliance on central bank activity? Look, it's challenging, isn't it? You know, they always sort of say, you know, I remember Ruth Richardson when she was finance minister saying, you know, monetary policy needs mates, you know, and I thought when I looked at the, I, don't, I haven't read all, all your things, I, I'm remiss in not doing that, Richard, but no doubt after the Aussie budget, um, you wrote quite a bit of stuff, but I was in Australia for group board and I saw Jim Chalmers on TV and I thought he gave a pretty um, a, a pretty careful and considered response. He pretty much said we can't afford to overheat things and even though we know energy you know, costs are going up for consumers and the likes, actually if we just pump too much cash into the system, the response will be for the Reserve Bank of Australia to have to raise rates by more. So I think... Governments are going to find it hard, actually, because on the one hand, there's no doubt that inflation bites really hardest on the, the least well-off. I mean, the blunt reality is if you look in the UK, I think something like over this week, winter heating period, I was in the UK you know, a few weeks ago, and they were saying that they thought, I think they thought the average household budget, the, the winter heating bill for a low to middle income family would go from something like 6% of their household budget to 40 well, they consume everything they earn everything anyway. So something's got to give, doesn't it? So they're gonna they're certainly gonna trade down from steak to sausages. There's no doubt about that. You know, they'll spend less money on other things. So I think the government does it where it targets a response. We'll have to target it to to the those really in need and be careful, I think, of very universal responses because um that that's a problem. I think I think secondly, you have to sit there and say, okay, well, what's driving your inflation and driving your concern? So if you take New Zealand at the moment, it's actually very hard to get into a good restaurant. It's pretty hard to get in any restaurant. So on the one hand, is that all because, to your point, we saved over COVID through government transfers and everything else? Or is it that they're now operational on a lower number of days and a lower sort of seating plan because it just can't get the staff? So I think in the end, if you want to resolve these issues, you ultimately need to unblock the, the choke points. And they are around labour markets and labour market mobility. It's probably to a degree, it's always about capital and productivity. Um, and, and I think you've got to do the things that, that aren't very sexy in terms of an announcement when you're a prime minister or a politician, but actually long-term put the economy on a footing where it actually can give you real and productive growth um, and that is investment in infrastructure and the like so it's a little different to the sugar hits of um, just throwing throwing money at people the pandemic was obviously a frightening period and difficult but uh, you allude to once policymakers recognized the danger they were facing it did it did become kind of an everything on the table all at once and in fact the uk experience is and governments everywhere really struggling to step back from that enhanced role they took in the economy, government spending struggling to return to pre-COVID levels. What do you think the implications are of this kind of bigger government involvement in the economy? Well, bigger government requires, you know, more fuel in the tank to, to, to make it run. And that, that, that ultimately has to lead it to a higher tax environment. And if you are like me and you believe that, you know, ultimately you can rob people of the desire to go and work and, and earn the extra dollar if you tax them enough, then actually that's bad because, I mean, ultimately you want 
people to be entrepreneurs, to take risks and to work and to go the extra mile and to retrain and to take on greater responsibilities. I mean, I think people who say that tax isn't a motivator um, and that they don't work, they often are the same people that also want to put a, a tax on, on something they want to see less of, like, you know, plastic or, or fossil fuels. So you can't have it both ways. Either you think they work or they don't work. I think they do work. Um, so I think big government generally isn't great. Secondly, I think the problem with big government is you're assuming government knows best and that bureaucracies are efficient. And actually, generally speaking, my experience is they, it's a lot of well-meaning people in the bureaucracy. I mean, you know, they work for my government and they work for the government afterwards, like Australia, I think our civil service is neutral and actually full of some very good people. But man, they're not that, that you know, that they take a belts and braces approach to everything for obvious reason, because the political risks sit on them if something goes wrong. So they're not efficient necessarily. And um, and then they can just make the wrong calls. I mean, firstly, you might get very political responses. And then secondly, you're just assuming that they call it right. Whereas what happens in the market, I mean, I'm not saying the market's perfect and, that, and sometimes it can result, drive, you know, sort of weird outcomes, things. But, but there's a reason why we set up systems that allow companies to be established and even fail in good years and bad years with a great degree of rapidity. And, and, and the reason we do that is because, is because we know what that does is that the right, the market drives capital in the right places eventually. I mean, eventually, you know, it will, you know, you look at the technology sector in the last 20 years, it's driven a huge amount of entrepreneurial activity, a huge amount of innovation and actually lifted productivity and, and, and the way we all act. That's why we all want to go to ANZ Plus or ANZ Go Money and not go into a branch because we find it a lot more convenient doing it from our home or our desk, you know. So I worry, you know, big government, I mean, uh, I, I don't want to sound like Ronald Reagan, but, you know, I'm, I'm the government, I'm here to help you. I don't think it's, it's the answer you really want to hear most of the time. On on that note, uh, you mentioned China. China still is a 15 trillion US dollar economy, so enormous, second largest in the world, but it, it does seem to have stepped down structurally in terms of how quickly it will be growing. And it it seems to me that it's two, three or 4% rather than the six, sevens or eights that we've been used to. What are the implications of a slower growing China, do you think? Well, I think globally that's negative, actually. I mean, Again, I go back to 08 and say, well, look, China was the third leg of the stool that actually held up the stool, you know, really, um, after the GFC and the United States was very weakened with the banking crisis, Europe was in trouble, China's growth got us through it. And, I mean, they just have a burgeoning middle class. I mean, they, they have a demographic problem. We all know that, you know, ageing population. But, you know, if you take a little country like New Zealand, I mean, what do we do well? We sell food. Um, we invite tourists and foreign students um, and we do some quite creative sort of you know, cutting edge things actually from sort of wetter workshops to you know rocket lab and when I look at all of that China's been the you know mecca for us in terms of you know buying the things that we produce or sending tourists or students you know it's been fantastic um, and that, that they are our largest trading partner, which is no mean feat given the geographic proximity and the strength of the of CER with Australia, you know, but they've gone past Australia. And and so I think in some respects, what we're going to see with China now is, as I said, firstly, less more of a political response, less of a less of a of a more 
probably more predictable response. I think they're definitely becoming more inward looking. There's no question about that. So I think the question for the world will be how do they want to engage? Because they might be difficult to read and they might be some challenges, but they're also difficult to ignore. I mean, as you pointed out, they're a massive economy and they might not be growing as fast as a while ago, but man, they can still buy a lot of products from you know Australian, New Zealand and from ANZ customers. So I don't know. I, I don't know whether I'd want to abandon the Chinese dream just so, quite so quickly. Certainly Australia and New Zealand and, and much of the region, in fact, imports a lot from China as well as exports a lot mm. from China. So that that uh, relationship and dependency goes both ways. We've spoken about macro, about China, about politics, about Trump. How does the world that we've spoken about um, affect New Zealand? How does New Zealand fit into this? Well, I always used to say New Zealand's this little country at the bottom of the world and no one knows us a living. So we better you know, get out there and make our way in the world, you know, with the last bus stop on the planet, us and a few, you know, sort of penguins down in Antarctica. So New Zealand is by definition a country that needs globalisation and engagement. And, and, and I think New Zealand has understood that. When I got on a plane and we negotiated free trade deals or I went off and met you know, uh, leaders in markets where we were going to export, whether it was Australia or China or the United States or anywhere else, that was popular because people, are, you know, New Zealanders understood we need to make our way in the world. We just don't have enough middle-income consumers. And also we, we, you know, like for instance, if you think about our dairy sector, which is, you know, very dominant in New Zealand in terms of global exports, we're nowhere near the biggest dairy producer in the world, not even by, you know, massive, you know, sort of fraction of it. What we are is a very small domestic consumer and a large exporter. So plenty of countries produce a lot more than us. They just consume it locally. So we need the world to engage. And, and that one of the worries is this, this view that trade um, is no longer the right way to go and not trendy and actually integrated global supply chains are not the way to go. It actually works against, I think, a country like New Zealand let alone COVID's certainly, you know, had some impact on people traveling or sending their kids to study in a country like New Zealand. I mean, having said all of that, I mean, I, or I'm a born optimist anyway, and I'm pretty optimistic about New Zealand and Australia because I just always look at them and think they're resource rich. They are fundamentally and philosophically safe places to live. They've got great climates as a general rule, although heating up. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a, there is a bright future out there for both of us. And we're still young countries. You know, we don't have some of the challenges, demographic challenges that you see in Japan or China. But, um, but that doesn't mean it's going to be an easy path, you know. John, you mentioned safe place to live. You said to me once, voters care about four things, uh, the economy, health, education, law and order climate change challenges, at least two of those. How difficult is this transition going to be? I, I mean, can we in fact get there? Yeah, I, look, I think we can get there. So I, you know, personally believe in anthropogenic climate change. And I think pretty much any self-respecting sort of uh, economist and, and sort of scientist in the world does really. 
I'm a little less negative than others because I think technology would help resolve our issues. So I don't think it's a linear reduction down to you know global warming at one and a half or two degrees. I think I think what happens is that you know it, some of these things are, are fairly instant. In other words, I sat next to the CEO of BMW the other day when I was in Germany giving a speech, and he said they make. I thought it was quite interesting, a quarter of a million units a year of cars, so a quarter of a million cars across Rolls-Royce Mini and BMW, um, less than 10%, quite, quite a bit less than 10% of those cars today are electric. By, but by 2030, they won't produce a Mini that's not electric. And I suspect most of their range will be. Now, depends on the source of that energy and maybe hydrogen's the answer, but you, know, you can sort of see where it's going to go. I mean, I think more and more and more, as as these cars have the range and, and all the you know the all the other benefits. I mean, and, and the cost capital cost comes down, people will get in them. So I don't think people in Australia and New Zealand are philosophically opposed to doing you know the right thing for the climate. They just don't want to change in their standard living. I think what the challenge is for somebody like New Zealand, and it's a really big issue, is that we have a an emerging country profile. And so our issue is that half of all of our emissions come from agriculture, methane, nitrate emissions. And even though we, we as a government, you know, help set up the Global Greenhouse Gas Alliance, we're putting a lot of money, we're constantly looking for nitrate and methane inhibitors, um, we brought in the emissions trading scheme. The, the, the change and the challenge for those, those areas is significant. And I mean, people just sort of sit there sometimes and say, well, you know, the, you know, the world's heating up a little bit, but yeah, okay. If you live in Dunedin and New Zealand, a little bit more heat might be seen as a good thing. Um, but the blunt reality is that's not what climate change is really all about. Yes, the world is heating up, but what does all of that mean? I mean it's catastrophic weather patterns. It's maybe significant impacts on on um, plant species and on, on, on fish. So right across the board, there's going to be a lot of change. And I think one of the things we've been doing at ANZ is saying, well, firstly, we have a responsibility as a financier to work with our clients so um and that is to work alongside them i think to say well do you have a plan are you thinking about all these things i think the second thing is we have to put our money where our mouth is and we are financing increasingly um great areas of sustainability i think we're the largest in australia financer of of, of green bonds um in new zealand we just had this um one percent loans for um uh, for energy and so if, you, if you're doing all sorts of different energy projects um, both at a retail and, and wholesale level you can access that and they've been very very popular with consumers so there's no question the finance sector has a role to play with corporate New Zealand and Australia and households as they transition to a, a greener world And but the only other last point I'd simply make is the challenge always with this stuff, and I can tell you from a political point of view, is that these are the two things you run into. Upfront, people don't feel it in the same way. They're starting to now with these big weather pattern changes. Um, and the second has been, even when they do feel it, and even when they really care about it, they often throw their hands in the air and say, well, you know, the three big emitters in the world are China, the United States, and India. So what's the point in us doing much if they're not going to pull their weight? So... I think I think my own view of that is actually China's doing more on climate change than people think. China and India are also at much lower standards of living, so there's there's there, there is like I think a develop a different um, development ask. Maybe one aspect of climate change uh, 
you know, the, despite this broad acceptance, which, which you mentioned, carbon taxes in general remain too narrowly based and rates too low. Um, why can't we seem to get there on carbon taxes? Are, are there any good strategies to improve their adoption? Oh, it's largely the impact on consumers, business and politics and the politics of all of it. But our government bought in the emissions trading scheme. Now, we, we, we didn't put agriculture into the, um, to the scheme straight away and we kept carbon prices, you know, because obviously we were concerned about um, that there would, you know, if you, if you transitioned too quickly, there'd be enormous demand, very difficult to offset and price would go up a lot. But, you know, it had some very interesting... Uh, you know, and and I guess it sort of you know it's probably worked out by now. You know, I'm a kind of born capitalist and a great believer in the market. You know, maybe overly trusting some might argue, but but anyway, the point was in my time when there was never a fossil fuel power plant um, consented in New Zealand, not because the government stopped it, but because the economics didn't work to support it, and. Um, and I think, you know, you have seen a lot more trees being planted, you know, for sequestration, all those kinds of things. So I think you do ultimately have to price carbon. The question is, OK, if you let that price just run away on you without a reasonable transition period, it's going to be difficult because those prices will become, you know, you know very, very challenging for consumers. And, and ultimately, those prices will get passed on. So you know, mum and dad will go off to Woolies or Coles or whatever and, and wonder why the hell they're paying, you know, such enormous prices for for the products they're buying. They won't be able to afford it and that just feeds into the inflation debate. But, you know, somewhere along the line, you have to move the dial. Eventually, you have to say, you know, we tax some things which we think um, not just for raising money, but have negative outcomes and we'll will reduce taxes, if you like, on things that don't. Thanks for joining us on Blue Lens On Mike. You can hear more by following us on SoundCloud and finding me on Twitter. This podcast is intended as thought leadership material. It is not published with the intention of providing any direct or indirect recommendations or to influence any person to make a decision in relation to any financial product or class of financial products. It is general in nature and does not take account of the circumstances of any individual or class of individuals. For further information, please refer to the full disclaimer at institutional.anz.com.